السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So apologies for the uh, the late start as you can see the internet was down so we've had to make uh, some creative solutions um, So last week we'd, uh, we were continuing with Surah Al-Masad and we'd covered the first two verses of this surah this amazing surah that speaks about an incident from the life of the Prophet وسلم, an incident that's relatively early on in prophethood. And it's amazing for many reasons, as we mentioned, but one of the most amazing, or one of the reasons why it's most amazing, is because this speaks of an incident concerning someone that is very close to the Prophet وسلم, in terms of relationship. Right? This is his uncle, his actual uncle, who has opposed him, and not only opposed him, it's not just someone who disagrees with him, or you know, maybe has a slight dislike for him, or you know, has a slight issue with what the Prophet ﷺ has brought. He is an ardent, open enemy of Islam. And he's the one who's one of the ringleaders of those enemies, one of the people who is most, uh, most ardent in his opposition to Islam and to the Prophet ﷺ. And we mentioned those statements and those uh, hadith and those narrations a couple of weeks ago when we did the introduction to the surah of how some of the scholars said that the reason behind the revelation of this surah wasn't just the incident of the mountain of As-Safa when the Prophet ﷺ is calling people to Islam and Abu Lahab stands up and he says, is this why you gathered us? But also as Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah mentions other narrations, one of them being that Abu Lahab was the person who would walk around, walk behind the Prophet ﷺ as he was calling people to Islam, saying that don't listen to him, he's crazy. He's a magician, he's a sorcerer. And when people who were visitors to Mecca would see this, they would ask, who is this man and who's the man behind him? And they would say, this is Muhammad giving a new call, a new message, and the man behind him is his own uncle. Right? And as we all know, right, it's part, of, part and parcel of life. You always have people that oppose you, you always have people that disagree with you, you always have people that will take the opposite stance to you. But when those people are your own family members, when it's your parents who disagree with you, your children, your siblings, and so on, that enmity and that opposition is far stronger than anyone outside or far away removed from you when they oppose you. So the Prophet ﷺ is feeling this at the very heart of his own family. And what's amazing is because we also said that from the narrations that are mentioned in the books of Sirah, is that the Prophet ﷺ had agreed to marry his two daughters to the two sons of Abu Lahab which shows that to an extent before Islam, they were relatively close, right? You don't just marry your children to anyone and everyone. You give the hands of your daughters in marriage to people that you feel relatively safe and comfortable with, you're confident within them, you are willing to give up your daughters to that family and to those parents, right? And those parents and those children. So the Prophet ﷺ had that relationship, it seems, and Allah knows best with Abu Lahab. But as soon as he starts calling to Islam, this is his greatest enemy, one of his greatest enemies, Abu Lahab, his own uncle. And so Abu Lahab becomes his ardent opponent. And because of it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a whole surah in defense of the Prophet wasallam and in opposition to Abu Lahab, showing that how Allah azza wa defends his awliya, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defends the people who are strong in iman, who have that strength, strength and conviction of Iman and that trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that no matter who stands against you, even if it's someone that is from the closest people to you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be with you and he will support you. So whether it's Ibrahim alayhi salam who is opposed by his own father or Nuh alayhi salam opposed by his own son or Lut alayhi salam opposed by his own wife, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and he stands by them and with them against those people who were their enemies. And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ with his uncle Abu Lahab. So we mentioned that Allah began this story by saying that Abu Lahab will be perished. Right? And the scholars, as we said, differed. Is it two statements that Allah is making? Or is it two du'as that Allah is mentioning? Or is it a statement, a du'a and a statement? That this is a du'a that was made and then Allah responded to that du'a. ما أغنى عنه ماله وما كسب 
what he earned and what he boasted about and what he gathered and what he attained and everything that he considered to be the source of his strength and his honor and his power and his might, what he thought made him better than the Prophet wasallam, better than the Muslims, Allah said, ما didn't benefit him, didn't profit him, right? It won't benefit him. And as we said last week, the scholars of tafsir, they said, it could be a ma nafia, a ma of negation, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that these things did not benefit him, or it could be ma'ul istifham, a question that's been asked. What did it benefit him? His whole life he worked to gather this stuff and he's boasting about it, but what will it benefit him when he comes to stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And this is somewhat rare, by the way. This surah is rare in the sense that Allah azza wa jal is condemning a man before he even passes away. Right? Because the Quran speaks about the enemies of Islam, speaks about Pharaoh, speaks about Qarun, speaks about Haman, speaks about the other enemies of the prophets of Allah, but it's after the fact, right? It's after they've passed away, after they've died. Abu Lahab is still living, he's still alive. And no other enemy of the Prophet ﷺ was mentioned in this way by name, right? Even though there are examples, as we mentioned from the Sunnah, where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned the names of some of his enemies in the Sunnah and he made dua against them, right? Which shows that those would be people who would never accept Islam, they would always reject faith. But in the Quran, it is only Abu Lahab and his wife that are mentioned, or Abu Lahab by name and his wife that are mentioned. So that's also somewhat unique in the Quran. Allah is as if he's saying that this man will never believe, right? He will never accept Islam. And because of it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his lifetime, he says and he mentions and he reveals this surah. So Allah in verse number three, he says, Sayasla naran lahab. He will enter into a Fire that is burning, right? Fire that is burning, full of flame, intense in heat. And the scene in Sayasla, in the Arabic language, and in this verse, can have two purposes, two meanings, the scene, Sayasla. Yasla is a, uh, a fi'al mudari', right? A verb in the present tense, right? He will enter. The scene has two purposes, Sayasla. The first is in the Arabic language, it's used to denote something that will take place in the future. In the Arabic language, there are three tenses when it comes to verbs. Unlike English, they have three different tenses. We have three tenses that are called past, present, and future. In Arabic, past, uh, sorry, present and future are considered one. Right? Present and future are considered one tense. The only difference between them is that for the future one, you just add a scene. So, yasla, sayasla. Yadhab, sayadhab. Yajlis, sayajlis. Yaqum, sayaqum. All you do is add a scene. So, in the Arabic language, the two of them are merged. And then the other two tenses, one is the past tense, like you have in English, and the third one is what? Anyone know? Fi'l? Amr. Command. Command tense, right? So, Allah Azza wa says, sit. Or Allah says, pray. And we say, for example, sit or stand or do or don't. These are fi'l amr. Right? So in the Arabic language, the past, the, the present and the future tense are combined. Right? They're one. The only difference is you add a scene before the present tense and it becomes a future tense. So is that what the meaning is? Sayasla. That's the first interpretation of the scene in Sayasla. That this is something that will take place in on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. He will enter into a fire full of, uh, full of flames. Right? Intense in heat. The second possible meaning of the scene that the scholars mention of tafsir is that it is sinul wa'id, the scene for threat of punishment. Sinul wa'id. And this is common in the Arabic language, and it's mentioned elsewhere in the Quran. For example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al Qabr, when he speaks about the people of Pharaoh, he says, Sayuhzamul jam'u wa yuwalluna dubur. Sayuhzamul. Yuhzam is the present tense. They will surely be destroyed, meaning the army of Pharaoh. So now the scene isn't about it will happen in the future, it is a promise from Allah, right? A promise and a threat of punishment. Likewise, Allah Azza wa Jal says, And let not those people that Allah Azza wa Jal has given to them from his bounty and from his grace 
and then they're miserly, they're stingy with the wealth and the favors and the blessings that Allah has given to them, don't let them think that that is better for them. Allah says rather it is worse for them. Allah gives them wealth, Allah gives them blessings, and they're miserly and stingy with it. And then Allah says, and this is the point of mentioning this verse here, سَيُطَوَّقُونَ مَا بَخِلُوا بِهِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ That which they were miserly and stingy with will become a source of their punishment on the Day of Judgment. Right? So it's speaking about the future again, but this scene is not just about the future, it is a promise of punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So some of the scholars said likewise in this verse in Surah Al-Masad, is the scene for the future or is it for a threat of punishment? And it, it can be both. Right? The scene can refer to both. It is something that will happen on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. He will enter into the fire full of flame. And at the same time, it is a threat and a promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this is what will happen to him on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. The word Sali. Right, sali, sayasla, sali. What does it refer to? Some of the scholars said it refers to burning. Right? It refers to burning. And if you look at the vast majority of translations of this verse, they translate the word sayasla as in he will enter. Right? He will enter and burn. Right? He will enter or he will burn. Right? The second possible meaning of sayasla is that he will enter. So you have enter and you have burn. And then you have scholars like Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah and Ibn Kathir who merge between the two. They said that what it means is that he will enter the fire full of flame and he will burn therein. He will enter the fire full of flame and he will burn therein. Why does Allah Azza wa call it entering and burning in this way? Some of the scholars said that Allah Azza wa is describing the fire. That this is a fire that the people who enter into it are its fuel. And this is mentioned elsewhere in the Quran. Allah Azza wa says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, qu anfusakum wa ahlikum nara, wa quuduhan nasu wal hijara. O you who believe, save yourselves and your families from the fire, its fuel is men and stones. Right? That's what the fire of Halwa al-Iyadhu Billah, that's what it uses to increase intense in intensity and burn even more. Its fuel will be men and stones. Right? So that's what some of the scholars said concerning this. So that Allah is, and this is the opinion of Tawus, rahimahullah ta'ala, that Allah is referring to this. When he says, Sayasla, he will enter into the fire full of flame, meaning that he will be from the fuel of the fire. That the fire will use him as it will use all of its inhabitants as fuel. Others said, like Ibn Abbas, عنهما, the, the famous companion of the Prophet, وسلم, the Mufassir of the Quran, he said, Rather, Allah is describing his situation in the fire, that he will burn in the fire. Right? He will burn in the fire. Not that he's just fuel for the fire. Allah is referring to his state in the fire, and that is that he will burn. Right? And as we know, uh, as is mentioned elsewhere in the Quran and in the Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, the punishment of the fire is something which will continue, it is everlasting. Right? It is not something which ceases. So as Allah says in the Quran, Every time their skin mounts from their bodies, we will replace their skin with new skin so that they may continue to taste that punishment. Right? So it's not the case, and this is something which we know even from the punishment of the grave, is that it's not just something which is a one-off and it finishes. Right? The Prophet told us وسلم, concerning some of the punishments of the grave that they are in their nature repetitive. And they're on a loop almost. They continue and continue until Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And then the people that are punished on Yawm Al-Qiyamah and they're thrown into the fire, it is continuous. Right? It repeats itself over and over again. So just when a person finishes their punishment or they think that it's come to an end, they eat from the tree of Zakum or they drink from the boiling water of the fire or they burn by the flames of the fire and their body takes that punishment and it's more or less destroyed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes them new again, revives them so that the whole punishment, the whole cycle can begin again. And it's the same in the punishment of the grave. The Prophet told us, sallallahu alayhi wa for example, the, the punishment of the one who spreads rumors or spread something which 
it starts as a rumor and it spreads across the world, right? It's something which reaches the afaq, spreads to the horizon, something which the whole community takes up. The Prophet told us وسلم, that that person in the fire, a person will come to them in their grave rather, a person will come to them and he will have a hook, he will place it inside the right side of their mouth and he will pull with such force that it will rip to the back of their neck. And then he will come to the left side and do the same. But by the time he's done it to the left side, the right side will have healed. Then he will come back and do it to the right and the left would have healed and he will continue to alternate until Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Right? Likewise, the one, for example, who stepped on the prayer, didn't wake up. The Prophet ﷺ told us that he will be made to lie down. And then a man will come with a boulder and he will throw it on his head and it will crush that person's head and the boulder will roll away. So the man who threw the boulder will go after the boulder to pick it up and by the time he picks it up and returns, the head will be reformed. So then he will crush it again. And this will happen over and over and over again until Yawm Al-Qiyam. So it is by nature repetitive. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is saying that he will be from the fuel of the fire, but that he will continue to burn in the fire until Allah Azza wa Jal, until Allah Azza wa Jal, like for eternity, will continue to burn in the fire. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls this fire that lahab. Sayasla naran that lahab. It is a fire full of intense burning flames. Right? One of the reasons that scholars said that Allah Azza wa refers to it in this way is to mirror the kunya. What was kunya again? The technonym of, I'm not, I'm not going to get used to that. The technonym of Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab is called Abu Lahab, which means literally father of flame. So Allah Azza wa describes him as being punished with that flame. Right, with the same name. And so Allah Azza wa describes it in that way to show that he will be punished with the same thing that he was known for in this dunya. Right? And that also has like it has a basis in the Sunnah, in the Sharia, because we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punishes people with the with the major sin that they perform, right? Just as we mentioned, whether it's you know zina or whether it's sleeping on the prayer, or whether it's spreading rumors and backbiting, whatever it is, or people who hoard their wealth right, and they don't spend it in the way of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. يوم يحمى عليها في نار جهنم فتقوى بها جباههم وجنوبهم وظهورهم هذا ما كنزتم لأنفسكم فذوقوا ما كنتم تكنزون Those people who don't spend in the way of Allah, they don't give their zakah, Allah says that he will use that wealth to burn their signs and their foreheads and their backs. And Allah Azza wa will say to them, this is the wealth that you hoarded, that you gathered. So now taste the wealth that you hoarded, right? You kept it to yourself to benefit from it. Now here, take it and benefit from it. And so Allah Azza wa punishes people with the things with which they disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when Allah azza wa he's known as Abu Lahab, but he's called Abu Lahab as we said for what reason? Because of his beauty, because he's handsome, right? Whereas Allah azza wa will use that to punish him on the day of judgment. The second reason that some of the scholars mention that it's called that Lahab is described as being full of flame is to show its intensity, to show that this isn't a fire that is dimming, it's not a fire that is weak. It's not a fire that, that's, that's you know, almost at, on the verge of, of petering out or of, of, of extinguishing itself. It is a fire full of intensity. It is at the peak of its heat. And you know that the fire is hot anyway. Because the Prophet told us, وسلم, that the example of the fire of this world compared to the fire of Yawm Al-Qiyamah is the example of one in 70. Right? The fire of this dunya is only one in 70, like the fire of Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And the Prophet told us, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in the other hadith, ishtakat naru ila rabbiha, that the fire of hell complained to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it said, akalat ba'di ba'da. Oh Allah, parts of me are devouring other parts of me. Fa'adhina laha binafaseen. So Allah granted it two, if you like, breaths. Right? That's the literal translation of the hadith, to take two breaths. So the Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, one in the summer, one in the winter, the severe heat that you find and the bitter cold that you find in the winter, the severe heat of the summer and the bitter cold of the winter, it is from the breathing of Jahannam. Billah. Right? And that's because of how intense that fire rages. Right? It is something which, and we know from the Sunnah generally, 
that even the people who will come close to that fire before they enter into the fire, that fire, it's intense heat, even before the gates of Jahannam are opened, it's something that they won't realize and that they will feel and that they will experience even before the gates of the fire are open upon them. Right? And when we come onto Surah Al-Zumar, when Allah in those verses was those famous verses from the last passage of Surah Al-Zumar, when inshallah we come unto them, Allah describes the manner of the fire and how it will be presented to the inhabitants of the fire. So it is something which is extreme in its heat. So some of the scholars said, Allah is describing the fire when he says, that lahab. It is full of flame, meaning intensely burning, and that those flames are extremely high, right? Big flames, extremely high and extremely intense. And obviously, then, as it increases in intensity, the people of the fire that are thrown into the fire are fuel for it, so it increases and it burns and it continues to burn with intensity. So, this verse shows, as we said at the beginning, that Abu Lahab would die upon disbelief. He will die upon kufr. He won't die upon iman. And it's as if Allah Azza wa Jal, or not as if, it is a promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sayasla naran dhata lahab. This enemy of yours, addressing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Muslims, this enemy of yours who opposes Islam, who tries to take people away from the path of Islam, who opposes the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, does physical harm to him and does psychological harm to him sallallahu alayhi wasallam his abode will be the fire sayasla naran dhatalahab and Allah azza wa jalla says it with all intensity all certainty that he will enter into the fire and it is full of flames the flames by which he was known in this world he will be punished by them on yawm al-qiyam and then verse number 4 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala moves on to his wife wa mara'atuhu hammalat al-hatab and his wife the wood carrier. His wife, until this point, hasn't been mentioned in the surah. But what we find then from this surah, and, and generally from the, the statements in the sunnah and the narrations of, of, in the books of Sirah and so on, is that this was an actual tag team. Right? This was a husband and wife partnership when it came to opposing the Prophet wasallam and for having a hatred of Islam. And I think it was last week or the week before we mentioned the statement of Ibn Taymiyyah, when he spoke of the different types of spouses that you find in the Quran. Right? You have the spouses that are both believers, the husband and the wife. You have the two that are disbelievers, and he gave the example of Abu Lahab and his wife. And then you have the husband is a believer, the wife is a disbeliever, like in, uh, with Lut alayhi salam. And then the opposite, where the wife is the believer, and the husband is the disbeliever, like Pharaoh and his wife Asiya. So Abu Lahab and his wife are an example of two people who their partnership in marriage is at their own detriment. Right? It's to oppose Islam. And we know from generally the verses of the Quran and from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that marriage, when it is done for the reason of, of attaining Allah's pleasure, coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, like having that sincere and righteous intention, it is one of the greatest paths towards Jannah. Right? It is one of the greatest paths towards paradise. When you marry with that intention, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses that union and the children that come from that marriage as well. But here we have the example of the reverse. Right? You have a husband and a wife, but rather want than wanting to seek Islam or seek guidance or learn about Allah or worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they used every means at their disposal to do the exact opposite. Right? And that's the same example that we gave a couple of weeks ago when he spoke about the, uh, the betrothal of the, the two daughters of the Prophet ﷺ to the two sons of Abu Lahab. The narration says that after this surah was revealed, Abu Lahab and his wife went to their two sons, Utba and Utaybah, and they said to them that we are haram for you. Right? And this was a figure of speech amongst the Arabs. It is haram for me to see you again. It's an oath that they make. I will never look upon you I will, and this was common, by the way, right? Even for many of the Muslims, the companions who accepted Islam, their parents, you have many narrations where their parents would say, you know, I swear that I will never seek shade. I will never sit down. I will never eat. I will never... And they would make these oaths with the intention of what? That their children should leave Islam, right? 
apostate from their religion, leave Islam, and come back to the religion of their forefathers. They did something similar. Abu Lahab, but none of them are Muslim. The children aren't Muslim either at that point. And they said that it is haram for us to look upon one another unless you leave the two daughters of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so they agreed and they left them. And as we know, Allah azza wa jal married Uthman, or rather the Prophet sallallahu married Uthman radiallahu an to his two daughters, Ruqayya and Umukulthum radiallahu anhuma. So Allah azza wa jal is describing here the wife of, of Abu Lahab. Who is the wife of Abu Lahab? She was from the noble women of Quraysh. Right? So just as you have the chieftains and the noble men of Quraysh, you have their wives who are the noble women of Quraysh. Right? The most famous example is who? Who's the most famous example of a noble woman of Quraysh? And I mean from the non-Muslims. Khadija, obviously Khadija, Aisha, and so on. But they're, they're, you know, they're noble in Islam. Right? All of the female companions are noble. Come on, who's the most famous... Abu Sufyan's wife, right? Hind, right? She's probably the most famous. Yeah, she later on, that's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she later on became a Muslim. Fair point. Okay. Would it be the, the, mother of, um, the mother of the wife of uh, Abbas? Because I've read that. The mother of the wife of Abbas? Because she had daughters who were married to Abbas and a few of us have but she's not really very famous. I mean, you have examples like that, like the mother of Musab ibn Umayyir and others, but they weren't well known, right? They were, no one really knows their name. Abu Sufyan's wife is the most famous, obviously she later on became a Muslim, but before her Islam, she was extremely like vigorous right, in her opposition to Islam and the harm that she did to the Muslims. And obviously the death of Hamza radiallahu anha is as a direct result of her planning and her plotting. But obviously later on she would become Muslim. So the wife of Abu Lahab is an example of this uh, from the noble women of Quraysh. Her name was Ummu Jamil, or rather her technonym. <laughs> her kunya was Ummu Jamil. Her name was Arwa. Arwa bint Harb ibn Umayyah. Arwa bint Harb is the sister of who? Abu Sufyan. Right, Abu Sufyan, who is the leader of Quraysh, and obviously later on he becomes a Muslim as well, radiallahu an. But for the, you know, for the vast majority of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, he is the leader of Quraysh and one of the main enemies of Islam until he accepts Islam after the conquest of Mecca. So this, or this, uh, this woman, the wife of Abu Lahab, is the sister of Abu Sufyan. Right? Her name is Arwa, but she's more famously known uh, through her kunya, which is Ummu Jamil. Ummu Jamil. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of her and he describes her as the wife of Abu Lahab. Right? There is a discipline in the sciences of Quran, right, or in the sciences of tafsir, that is called ahkam al-Quran, right? the legal rulings of the Quran. And scholars, what they did, they made this into a discipline and they wrote books upon this. And what does it mean? It means that they refer to the verses of the Quran from which you can extrapolate fiqh rulings. Right, legal rulings, fiqh rulings of you know the do's and the don'ts, the halal and the haram. The verses of the Quran that speak about those fiqh rulings, they extrapolated rulings from them, and they did tafsir only of those verses. Right, and there is in each madhab you find a book similar to that. Ahkam al Quran it is called. Al Qurtubi has one, Al Jassas has one, you know, like others from amongst the scholars of the madhahib and so on, and they call those books Ahkam al Quran. Right? They refer to the rulings of the Quran. There are many examples of the Quran. You know, verses of marriage, verses of zakah, verses of prayer, verses of hajj. You know, there's like lots of examples. But when it comes to these verses, there's like two kind of approaches that the scholars have when it comes to Ahkam al-Quran. One is that they only speak about the verses that are explicit in rulings. So the verses of prayer, verses of wudu, verses of zakah, verses of divorce, verses of inheritance. There are, these are explicit verses of the Qur'an that dealing with, deal with the halal and haram, rulings, wajib, not wajib, whatever it may be. And so they did tafsir of them. The second approach, right, which is, you know, like Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, it's the kind of approach that he takes, is that they take and deduce and derive rulings from all of the Qur'an, even if they're not explicit as being halal or haram. So it's not a verse that speaks about you know, marriage explicitly or zakah or hajj or anything else, but there is an implicit ruling to be taken from it. 
right, an implicit ruling that can be derived from it. And this is an example of that. وَمْرَأَتُهُ right? What is the ruling that is taken from this? That a non-Muslim uh, husband and a non-Muslim female uh, are still technically a husband and wife. That Allah affirms the marriage of the non-Muslims. Abu Lahab and his wife are married. They're not Muslims, and their marriage ceremony wasn't according to the rulings of Islam. They didn't have a mahar, right? They didn't have a wali. They didn't have two witnesses. Wasn't like you know, they wasn't done with the normal ijab and qabul, the contract that we make at the time of marriage. But Allah Azza wa Jalla affirms their marriage from them, for them. His wife, and he calls him his wife. Right? And that's why when the Prophet ﷺ, when, when husband and wife would accept Islam and they would become Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ wouldn't order them to remarry, wouldn't command them to make a new nikah. Right? So Abu, Abu Bakr accepts Islam with his wife and others from amongst the companions, many of them, they accepted Islam as families. The husband and wife are not ordered to remarry again with a Muslim, you know, if you like, or an Islamic nikah. Right? Allah affirmed for them there their marriages, right? The only difference of opinion comes is if one spouse accepts Islam and the other one doesn't and so on, that's a different issue. But generally, if both of them accept Islam, they're considered to be Muslim. And if they don't accept Islam, like in the case of Abu Lahab, Allah still affirms for them their marriage, right? So this is an example of a fiqh ruling, but it is implicitly, it's not something which is explicitly mentioned, it's not something which you would, you know, would, would come to the forefront of your mind just by reading that verse, but it's something which some of the scholars mentioned, and I thought it was an interesting point. So Allah Azza wa Jal calls him, calls her rather, the wife of Abu Lahab. Right? This is Ummu Jamil. And then he describes her. And he says, Hamalat al-Hatab. Right? The firewood carrier. Hamalat al-Hatab is a type of wood that was most, mostly used to burn. Right? Firewood. You collect this type of wood, twigs, branches, and so on, and it's used to burn, right? You cook with it, you use it for fire, and so on and so forth. But what is the meaning of Hamalat al-Hatab? There are four opinions amongst the scholars of Tafsir. The first of them is, why is she called this, right? And why, why did, the linguistic meaning is, is, is obvious, right? So the, the linguistic meaning is that she carries firewood. That's what Hamalat al-Hatab means, right? She carries firewood. That linguistic meaning is very obvious, but what does it actually refer to? Because Ummu Jamil, as we said, is from the noble women of Quraysh. She would have had slaves, and she would have had maids, and she would have had other people that would go and carry her firewood. She wouldn't be the one walking around in the valleys of Mecca or in the streets of Mecca or wherever, carrying firewood to come and burn at home, right? She has people to do that. That's what they do, right? And the rich and the wealthy and the noble uh, the nobility of Quraysh had slaves that did these menial tasks for them, right? And even, uh, you know, like there's, you know, we have the story of Bilal, we have the story of many others from amongst the companions who used to be slaves before they accepted Islam. It was common amongst the Quraysh. So Ummu Jamil herself wouldn't necessarily be doing this. this. isn't something that she would do. It's not, it doesn't befit the station that she has amongst the society of Quraysh. So therefore the scholars ask, what does it actually refer to? Hamalat al-Hatab. And they had four opinions. The first of them is the statement of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma, and that is, is that she would go and she would carry thorns or splinters from the wood that she would gather to throw outside of the door of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, outside of his house, his front door, so that when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam comes out, he would step on it and injure himself. He would hurt himself. Right? So she would take shok. Shok is like thorn, but what it's probably referring to here is either the thorns from trees, from branches, so it's branches with trees, or it's the splinters from wood. Right? Splinters from branches and wood that she's gathering up. This is what she's looking for. So she's not there to carry firewood for herself, for her family, for cooking, or whatever. She's collecting this as a as a reason to go and then to throw outside of the front door of the Prophet ﷺ. So that when he comes out, what does he find? He finds these thorns and so on, and either he steps on it or injures himself, or it's just an impediment that makes it difficult for the Prophet ﷺ to leave his house. Right? And it's said that she would do this during the night, so that by the morning, it would be there. So when he would come out for Fajr or in the morning, it would be there. 
and if they were cleared up, she would go and do it again in the following night. Right? So this was the statement of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhumah, and al-Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah said, this seems to be the most likely of the four opinions that we will mention. The second opinion, and this was the opinion of Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that what she would do was she would humiliate and degrade the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam using her words, right? And so she would carry, you know, degrading messages of the Prophet ﷺ. She used to, for example, say that he's poor, right? She would, they would say, they would claim that he is poor, right? And we mentioned this last week when Allah says, مَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَالُهُ وَمَا كَسَبُ his wealth and what he has, his children won't benefit him. We mentioned the statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu an that Abu Lahab said that even if I come on the day of judgment, then I will use my wealth and my children to ransom myself from the punishment of Allah. Right? I will use my wealth and what I have and I will ransom myself from the punishment of Allah. So Allah said it won't benefit him. His wealth and what he accumulated, his children, all of that won't benefit him in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At the same time, Qatada rahimahullah says that what they would say about the Prophet is that he's poor, he's penniless, doesn't have, and they mean it in a way that is degrading and humiliating to him. The third opinion, and this is the opinion of Al Hassan and others, rahimahullah, Al Hassan al Basri and others, is that she would go around spreading rumors about the Prophet. So the firewood that she's Carrying that Allah says she used to carry firewood, they say that it's not literal, but it's metaphorical. She's causing a fire of words. Right? She's spreading fire using her words and the rumors that she's spreading. Right? What's, what are the rumors that she's spreading? He's a magician. He's a poet. He's crazy. He's a liar. All of these rumors that they're spreading and that then spread and, and take hold amongst the Quraysh and amongst the Arabs, this is something which she's spreading and she is propagating herself. So this is what Allah is referring to. It's not the actual firewood. And the reason why they, and Allah knows best, but the reason why they seem to go to this opinion is because they said that Ummu Jamil wouldn't be carrying firewood even to collect splinters and to collect other things. It's not something which she would have done. She would have got one of her slaves to do it and then pass it on to her. So instead they took a more metaphorical approach and that is that Allah Azza wa Jal is, or rather what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to is the fire of jealousy that they had. And the way that they're lighting or igniting or fueling that fire of jealousy is using the rumors and the lies that they spread about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the fourth opinion uh, of, uh, which is ascribed to Sa'id ibn Jubayr, rahimahullah ta'ala, who is also one of the famous scholars of the Tabi'een. He said that what, the, what she was carrying, the, what, what she is carrying, this firewood carrier, or this hatab that she's carrying, it refers to the sins that she's accumulated in this life. So the sins that she has because of her enmity and her hatred for the Prophet wasallam and the Muslims, this is what she is carrying together. Right? And as we said, Al-Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah said, which of those four seems most likely? The first, right? That it's something which she physically did in order to harm the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And as we said, it is a well-known manhaj and methodology amongst the scholars of tafsir, that if we can reconcile between some of those views, it should do so. And Allah Azza wa knows best, but there's no reason why more than one of those opinions can't be applicable and correct. So she would do the physical harm, but also the other types of verbal harm that she used to do, whether it's spreading rumors or whether it's you know, her uh, degrading the Prophet وسلم, and at the same time she's physically harming him as well. And then you also have on top of that as well, you also have the fact that she's therefore carrying her sins and the burden of the enmity that she had for the Prophet And his wife, the firewood carrier, what does that refer to? Hammalat al-Hatab. There are two readings of Hammalat al-Hatab. Right? The reading that we have, the qira'ah that we have, which is the qira'ah of Asim, with the fatha. Hammalat al-Hatab. The other qura'ah, other than Asim, other than the one that we read, all of the other qura'ah, be Nafi' ibn Kathir, or all the others, they read it with a dhamma. Hammalat al-Hatab. 
What's the difference between the two? The difference is that Hamalatul Hatab is a description of the wife of Abu Lahab, Ummu Jamil. So this is the description that Allah is giving to her. Whereas with the Fatha Hamalatul Hatab, it is as if Allah Azza wa Jal is describing her in the fire. It's a description for her. So the first one is, 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 is her description because that's what she used to do. The second one is Allah Azza wa Jal describing her state in the fire. Al-Imam Ibn Kathir, just to make this um, more clearer, Al-Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah, let's start with him because he's you know, senior and older and he comes first. Al-Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah, said that the wow and the wife of Abu Lahab, the carrier of, of firewood. Right? The wow, he said, the and, refers to her and Abu Lahab, both of them being punished in the fire. So Abu Lahab will go into the fire, that Lahab, and as will his wife. Right? It's an and, right? Him and her, both of them, will be punished in the fire. Al-Imam ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, he said that what it refers to is that Abu Lahab will be in the fire, and just as his wife, Ummu Jamil, helped him in this life, helped him in this life in an enmity, in opposition to the Prophet wasallam and the Muslims, then likewise in the next life, she will be helping to pour the wood and the fuel of the fire upon him. So she is being punished as well. But what was her role in this life? Because remember, as we said, it is a well-known established principle in the Sharia that Allah Azza wa Jal punishes people with the major sin that they committed. What was her major sin? What was she known for doing? Helping her husband in enmity of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So Imam Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, and I've read from some of um, the scholars of Tafsir that he was one of the first to come with this explanation, Imam Ibn Kathir, because before that, as we said, we have the four opinions, right? We have the four opinions of Ibn Abbas and you know Al Hasan al-Basri and Sa'id Ibn Jabir and so on. Ibn, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, it seems by wanting to reconcile between all of this, what did he say? He said that what she will be doing. Is just as she helped him in this life, she will be helping to add to his punishment in the next life. Right? So she will be the one who will be pouring the fuel of the fire. Hamalat al Right? She's the one who's carrying the firewood. But the firewood here isn't referring to this life, it's referring to the fuel of Jahannam. So she will be in the fire, being punished as well, but she will increase his, impunish- his punishment as well by adding the fuel upon her fire. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best, right? And so that's why you have the two readings of Hamalatul Hatab, Hamalatul Hatab. Hamalatul Hatab with the Dhamma okay. is, an, is an, a description of her that she was a firewood carrier, that's what she did. Okay. Sorry, Hamalatul Hatab with the Dhamma. Yeah, with the Dhamma. Hamalatul Hatab, they said, is for them. Right? Them means that it's to degrade her. Right, to show that she was unworthy. Right? And then Imam ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, he brings his tafsir for the verse. And he commented on both of the versions? Or on yeah, so this is like a linguistic difference, right? What does the Dhamma refer to? What does the Fatha refer to? They said the Dhamma is a description of her. The Fatha is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala degrading her. Right? Just as she would degrade the Prophet, mm-hmm. he's degrading her. And, and that's why Imam al-Tabari, he seemed to have... He seemed to have uh, seems to lean towards the the first one, right? That he's this is a description for just as Abu Lahab will enter into the fire, his wife will enter into the fire. And then you have the other one that Ibn Kathir says that yes, they're both in the fire, but what she's doing is she's adding to his punishment just as she helped him in this life, she will help him in the next life as well. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, right? And that's because Al Imam um, uh, Umm Jamil was well known not only for her enmity of Islam, but she was known also for her aggressiveness. Right? She was openly aggressive. And it's not like the case that she would leave it to her husband to you know, dole out punishment, or he would be the one that was physically aggressive. She herself was known to be physically aggressive against the Muslims. So we have the hadith that is collected in Ibn Hibban on the authority of Abdullah ibn Abbas, that when Allah Azza wa Jal revealed Surah Al-Lahab, the wife of Abu Lahab came to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam whilst he was sitting with Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu. So when Abu Bakr saw her, he said, "O Messenger of Allah, 
this is the wife of Abu Lahab and she's an evil woman. And she's someone who has no shame, right? no, no haya, no shame. And I fear that if she comes to you, she will physically harm you. Right? She will harm you. She, she won't care that she's a woman, you're a man. She doesn't have any of those reservations. So the Prophet said to him, she won't see me. So she came and she said to Abu Bakr, I heard that your companion, meaning the Prophet has insulted me, meaning because she heard the revelation of Surah Al-Masad. So the uh, so she's saying so she's saying where is she where is he I want to see him and the Prophet ﷺ is sitting next to Abu Bakr radiAllahu anhu but she doesn't see him and then she turns around and she leaves and she, and so Abu Bakr radiAllahu anhu said Oh Messenger of Allah how come she didn't see you and the Prophet ﷺ replied because there was an angel that veiled me from her there's an angel that veiled me from her with its wings. And it would have stayed so long as she stayed. Right? And so this is something which shows how her nature was. That she was openly aggressive. And she wasn't someone who just you know, like had words or said things that were derogatory. But she was openly and physically aggressive against the Muslims and to the Prophet ﷺ. Coming on to the last verse, inshallah, so we can finish this surah. Allah Azza wa Jal says, Fi jidiha hablum min masad. So Allah Azza wa Jal then finishes the verse still describing the wife of Abu Lahab. That in her, on her or in her neck or around her neck will be a rope of masad, right? Which is, you know, in most translations that you find, it is uh, translated as being palm fiber or a fiber made of palm leaves. The scholars of tafsir, some of them said that it refers to a a um, a physical necklace that she would wear, right? So, for example, Sa'id ibn Musayb, rahimahullah said that Umm Jamil used to have a, uh, a necklace that she would wear around her neck. Right? Jeed in the Arabic language, the word Jeed is a name for neck. Right? Jeed is a name for neck as Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah, mentions in his tafsir. It's another word for neck. So Sayyid ibn Musayb rahimahullah, said that she would have a necklace that she would wear around her neck that was expensive. Right? And when Islam came, she sold the necklace so that she could use its money to harm the Muslims. She sold the necklace so she could use its money to harm, or the, the money that she got from selling it, to harm the Muslims and to oppose the Prophet wasallam. So Allah says that that wealth will be the source of her punishment on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Right? It will be the source of her punishment on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Others, like Al-Imam Al-Sha'bi, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, it's reported on the Haq. Imam Al-Tabari mentions this in his tafsir also. Ibn Abbas has something similar to it. Al-Hasan al-Basri uh, and others from amongst them. They said that it's referring to the, a, a, an actual rope. An actual rope made of palm fiber. And this was the rope that when she would collect her thorns or she would collect her splinters of wood, she would use the rope to tie it so as to make it easier for her to carry it. So when she would go and she would pick up this stuff, she would have the rope dangling around her neck. Almost, not like a necklace, but almost as if it's something where she would place around her neck just so that it's easy for her to bend down and scoop up these thorns and these splinters of wood and so on. And then when she has them all together, because it's hard to carry that stuff if it's individual, she would wrap it with that rope and she would tie it up and then she would carry it together. And so Allah Azza wa Jal will punish her with it, right? And Masad, they said, is from a type of tree that comes in, in Mecca, uh, according to some of the scholars of Tafsir. Others said that it is from a tree that was in Yemen, and they would export its leaves, or they would bring its leaves, import its leaves into Mecca, and so on. So that's the second opinion. So well, the first position is the same, because that is a physical thing. It's a physical thing, but they differ, right? So Sayyid ibn Musayb saying it's an actual necklace. Right? So it's a necklace that she sold for wealth. And with that wealth, she used to harm the Muslims. The second opinion, they said, no, it's an actual rope. Right? It's the, the literal translation of the verse is what they're referring to. And the third opinion, which is um, ascribed to Mujahid and Urwa and uh, others from amongst the, the Salaf, they said that, no, it's referring to a rope of fire, meaning that Allah Azza wa will punish her around her neck with a rope of fire. Right? And it's possible that all three of them, you know, have some, some standing in the sunnah uh, or in the sharia in the sense that she maybe she had a necklace that she sold and she used to have a rope that she would tie 
her thorns with, and that Allah Azza wa Jalla will, will punish her using that same type of rope around her neck. And Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, what he tried to do when, in order to try to merge these different opinions, he said that no, she wore a necklace made up of all three. A necklace made up of jewels, of fiber, and of you know, some type of stones and something which with, with which she will be burned in the fire. Right? And he tried to merge her in this way. And this seems, you know, like I understand the, you know, the, the manhaj of reconciling between differing views, but sometimes it's just not possible, right? And sometimes you come up with this, you know, like it's not, it doesn't seem likely that she would have worn a necklace of this type of material, right? Some of its rope and some of its jewels and some of its... It's not something which I think would be um, which, something that someone would wear, right? But Imam al-Tabri, rahimahullah, he tried to merge between these three opinions by saying, no, she wore all three. And that's what Allah will punish her with, all three. But you can say that she wore different things at different times, and so Allah Azza wa Jal will punish her with all of this on Yawm Al-Qiyam, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Right? And with that we come to the end of the surah, Surah Al-Masad. It can be both. So that's what we said, right? So we said that it can be both. But in Arabic language, can, the scene can have dual purpose, right? It can have this purpose or it can have that purpose. Anyone else? Any other questions? Nothing online. <laughs> Nothing online because we're not online? All right. So that makes it easy. Okay, so inshallah, jazakumullah khair. We'll stop there with the Allah ta'ala. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi